sermon number 549, For What Are You Living?, preached October 18, 1970, in the First Presbyterian Church of Bakerstown. The text is Philippians 1:21. For to me, to live is Christ. Scripture reading, Philippians 1, 12th verse through 26. found in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, or the Philippians, We're beginning to read at the twelfth verse of the first chapter. I want you to know, my brothers, that the things that have happened to me have really helped the progress of the gospel. As a result, the whole palace guard and all the others here know that I am in prison because I am a servant of Jesus Christ. And my being in prison has given most of the brothers more confidence in the Lord so that they grow bolder all the time in preaching the message without fear. Of course, some of them preach Christ because they are jealous and quarrelsome. But others preach him with all good will. These do so from love, for they know that God has given me the work of defending the gospel. The others do not proclaim Christ sincerely, but from a spirit of selfish ambition. They think that they will make more trouble for me while I am in prison. It does not matter. I am happy about it, just so Christ is preached in every way possible, whether from wrong or right motives. And I will continue to be happy, for I know that because of your prayers and the help which comes from the Spirit of Jesus Christ, I shall be set free. For my deep desire and hope is that I shall never fail my duty, but at all times, and especially right now, I shall be full of courage so that with my whole self I shall bring honor to Christ, whether I live or whether I die. For what is life? To me, it is Christ. Death, then, will bring something even better. But if by living on I can do more worthwhile work, then I am not sure which I should choose. I am caught from both sides. I want very much to leave this life and to be with Christ, which is far better thing. But it is much more important for your sake that I remain alive. I am sure of this, and so I know that I will stay. I will stay on with you all to add to your progress and joy in the faith. So when I am with you again, you will have even more reason to be proud of me in your life, in Christ Jesus. A while back, a very popular West Coast Presbyterian minister was invited to speak on a college campus, and while he was there for that spiritual emphasis week, he was contacted by one of the fraternities on campus. And he was asked that if late some evening he might come down and speak to this group, of, this group of young men. The preacher always 
interested in an opportunity for witness and conversation readily agreed. And when the night came for the appointment, the preacher was there, and as the meeting was about to commence, he turned to the chairman of the group and said, Tell me, young man, what are you living for? Very promptly and excitedly, the young man replied, I'm going to be a pharmacist. That's not what I asked you, replied the preacher. You have told me how you're going to earn your livelihood, but I didn't ask you that. I asked you, what are you living for? The boy thought for a while, and then he readily confessed, I'm sorry, sir. I haven't thought that through yet. You know, there's a lot of people in life who have not yet thought through the purpose for which they are living. As a matter of fact, I think there are many people on this earth who travel the distance from the cradle to the grave without ever asking themselves, even once, for what am I living? It's so easy, you see, to confuse our livelihood with our purpose for living. So easy that many times I think we substitute our livelihood rather than be faced with the difficulty of thinking through a proper purpose. Because livelihoods are very important. Livelihoods are necessary if we're going to survive. Because so much of our time and effort and energy is poured into making a living, it's altogether possible that we forget to ask why it is that we are living and for what purpose. Paychecks are very important. You couldn't get along without them. Neither could I. Paychecks are necessary if we're going to maintain the house, pay the bills, educate the children, and, and keep the family happy. But when these things become the main business of living, we become something less than the human beings that God has created in his own image. We, we become an insult to our own personalities when just what kind of a house we live in and how many suits we own and how much food we can eat, when these things become goals in themselves, we, we've lost meaning as to why it is that God put this bit of protoplasm here on the face of the earth in the first place. It's altogether possible, you see, though we can become so wrapped up in ourselves that we do not realize that life to be life must have a greater purpose than just preserving our humanity and comforting our bodies. Did not Jesus himself ask the question to the disciples, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Food, clothing, shelter. These are necessary if we are to survive. But we can no more use all of the God-given capabilities that we have for building bigger and better survival kits than can an army or a group of soldiers win a war by only lounging around the kitchen or spit-shining their shoes.
You've got to have more than just the desire to want to protect what we have and get bigger and better barns. We've got to be able to live. And to be able to do this, it requires more than pampering these bodies and accumulating grown-up toys. Life must have a purpose. And that purpose can never just be our livelihood. And we must be very careful that in working eight or ten or twelve hours a day, six and maybe seven days a week, we don't become so involved in our livelihood that we forget to live. And for what purpose God has created us to live. You see, the Apostle Paul had a livelihood. Those of you who know your Bibles and have studied something about this great man of God, you know that he was a tent maker. That was the way he earned his livelihood. But you see, we don't remember Paul for the tents that he made. And when you think seriously about it and ponder the fact, you will realize that every man, woman, and young person who lives on this earth and leaves is not remembered so much as to how he lived, but for what he lived. What was important to him? We don't remember people according to their livelihoods. What is indelibly marked upon our impressions are whether or not they had a big enough purpose in life to make us respect them and love them and want to emulate them. His Paul had a livelihood, but that was not his purpose for living. If you had asked him, Paul, why are you here on earth? And every day, what is it that you give your energies to? I'm sure he would answer, as he does in this letter to the Philippians and as he does in other passages when he makes reference to the fact that his purpose in living is Christ. For me to live is Christ. His main purpose, his only goal, was to exemplify in his own being the person and the life of Jesus Christ. Let's look at this in a very simple way. Paul, you see, had not always been Paul. Some of you have read about him when he was Saul. And at that particular of life, he was in what we call in the church an unredemptive position. He was unredeemed. He had not yet met Jesus Christ. He did not know the magnitude of God's love. He did not know about the real meaning and cleansing that comes with forgiveness. He did not know what it was to be in communion with his Creator. He was a sinner, unredeemed. And then one day, or maybe it was night, while traveling down the Damascus turnpike, he came face to face with Jesus Christ. He claims to have seen him. At least he heard a voice. People were knocked to the ground. Saul was made blind. In somehow, in some miraculous way, which to this day only God himself knows, Saul got a glimpse of God through Jesus Christ. He got a vision the like of which he had never had before. He never saw such beauty. 
He never saw such glory. He never saw such forgiveness. He never saw such grace. He never saw such love. And he gave himself up in his inner struggle to the mercy of this particular being. And he asked Jesus Christ to come into his life, to turn him around, to change him, and to make him a new man. And he asked, you see, that he could be crucified with Christ, which is another way of saying that he wanted the mind that was in Jesus Christ to think in his brain. He wanted the heart that was in Jesus Christ to beat in his own chest. He wanted every day and every way to be like Jesus Christ so that he could say, It is no longer I who live, but Christ Jesus who liveth in me. He wanted people on the outside to see him and to live a life so much like Jesus Christ that maybe even people would be confused and think that this was Christ alive in the world again. He wanted to become the twin brother of his Savior. And everything Christ had done, thought, he wanted to make his thought and his act. <laughs> This is what it means when he said, For me to live is Christ. So he made the purpose in his life to make his life like Christ. And how did he do it? He did it by making as one of his goals or one of his purposes to do only those things and say only those things which are considered right in the eyes of God. He was trying to seek not only first the kingdom of God, but also God's righteousness. He wanted to do everything right. You see, this was something new for Paul. As I mentioned before, when we first met him, he was Saul, and at that particular period in his life, just like you and just like me, he could not have cared less what was right and what was wrong. Like some of the friends we have, he never even thought in that vein as to whether or not what he was doing was the right thing or wrong. He did what he wanted to do whenever he wanted to do it. And he thought about the consequence later on. Ethics, morality. He had nothing to do with them. He did what he wanted to do and set himself up only as the judge of what was right and what was wrong. And then came the Damascus Road and he met Jesus Christ. And he saw that in this particular one, God was telling us that in certain things in life there's a right way to do them and there's a wrong way to do them. There's a right way to live and there's a wrong way to live. And he saw in this Jesus Christ the perfection of God's law, the completion of his love, 
And he saw that this man lived. There's no other man that ever lived. Tempted in all ways, just as been Paul, but he had never sinned. This man had done everything right in the sight of God. And Paul made up his mind that the least that he could do in life, if he was going to become like Jesus Christ, was to the best of his ability and in the dependence upon the grace and the help of God, he would try to do only those things that were right in the sight of God. And it wasn't easy for him. I believe me, it wasn't. Because in his day, just like we have them in our day, there were some individuals who laughed at Paul when he gave as his excuse for not doing something or the reason why he did them being that God said that this was right or God said that this was wrong. They laughed at him. Like when sometimes the world laughs at us when we give as our only explanation as to why we do certain things or do not do them. We say it's because in the sight of God this is right or this is wrong. I'm sure many of them were asking Paul, such as many of our friends are asking us to explain why, when we can't give any reason why, except to say in the sight of God this is right. I'm sure there were some young minds running around in Jerusalem and Damascus and some of these other towns who were trying to talk about a new morality, a new ethic. Paul, don't be old-fashioned. I cannot because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, says it is wrong. The world needs more people today who are willing to answer some of these new things in life. with God's word of it either being right or wrong. I'm sure Paul many times had that inner gnawing in his stomach and in his blood and in his flesh when he had desires that were considered almost insatiable. He, he wanted to release himself. He wanted to do some of those things that he did not want to do because he knew in the sight of God they were wrong. And the only thing he could do would be to hang on tight and to get down on his knees and ask, God, please give me help, for I'm not strong enough to withstand myself. I'm sure there were many times when Paul was questioned about a decision that he had made, a decision which was considered unpopular, a decision which was maybe different from his previous life as Saul. And they said, why have you changed your mind and now why have you taken this radical position? Because in the sight of God it is right. That's why. He knew what it was to have to take that particular position of being separate from the world. And I'm sure Paul many, many a time at night knew what it was to get down on his knees beside his bed and ask God for forgiveness because he knew that day through some act or word of commission or omission 
He had not done what was right in the sight of God, and he felt guilty. And he asked for God's forgiveness for failing to do or to say what was right. But he asked for that forgiveness, and then forgetting those things which are behind and looking forward unto the goal of doing what is right in the sight of God, he pressed forward, trying the next day to again do what was right in the sight of God. The right is more obvious, ladies and gentlemen, than many of us would like to admit. And if we'd only quit trying to rationalize why we do things and be able honestly to say that in the sight of God this is right or this is wrong, and we can do this more times than we think we can, we'd find a purpose in life that's worth living. He made love his aim. Love his aim. You see, unlike Will Rogers, the Apostle Paul did meet some people he did not like, many of them, but he never met a man that he did not try to love. And this was tough for Paul. You remember when we first met him, it was a cell, and he was acting as a superintendent of an execution committee that was putting to death someone with whom Saul could not agree. That's the way the old man used to get rid of people, get rid of them through life or through death, but get rid of them. Now he was under new orders. He had a new hero. In Jesus Christ he met the one that God sent into the world, not to condemn the world, but because God loved the world. In Jesus Christ he saw one who, even when he was being put to death, was able to say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Here is a man who made love his aim, and Paul knew that if ever he was going to become like Jesus Christ, he must have the sole purpose of loving the whole wide world. And though it was unnatural to his nature, with the help of God and with Jesus Christ in his heart, Paul was able to overcome the most difficult thing any man has to overcome, loving that which is unlovely. This man did it, for if he had not, he would have never have been able to write 1 Corinthians 13. And if you are having a little trouble loving someone, whether it be in your own family, in your work, in your community, in the world, May I recommend to you that you take, say, the New English Bible, which has, I think, the finest translation of this, the greatest passage in my estimation in all the Bible. And you read this for 30 days, every day. And if Jesus Christ is in your heart, and you are trying to make love your aim, believe me, at the end of 30 days you will be a different person. Love is patient, love is kind, and envies no one. Love is never boastful, never conceited, never rude, never, never selfish, nor quick to take offense. Love keeps no score of wrongs, does not gloat over other men's sins, but delights in the truth. There is nothing love cannot face. There is no limit to its faith, its hope, its endurance. He made love his aim.
And his purpose in life was to love the whole world just as God loves her. And then he made as a goal eternity. His purpose in living was so that he could live forever. You see, the Apostle Paul was not one of these individuals who believed that when a man's life on earth is over, that his life is over. He believed in the heavenly city. He believed that God, through Christ, had prepared a room for him in that heavenly city. And that someday, according to God's calendar and God's plan, he would go to that place, that other country, where he was a citizen. And he lived as though there will always be a tomorrow, and also that the tomorrows will never cease, be they here or be they on the other side. Paul loved looking forward to that day when no longer would he look through a glass darkly, but would see face to face and know then, even as now he was known. He longed for the other life, and many times he longed to live there rather than here. It was a big dilemma, as we read in the passage today, whether or not he wanted to live here or over there. And like Dwight L. Moody, who in August of 1899, said to a group of people, Ladies and gentlemen, someday you will read that Dwight L. Moody is dead. Do not believe it, for on that day I shall be more alive than I am today. That's the way Paul thought. He thought whether he is living here or over there, he is still alive. And like Moody, he was able to say, just look there at the other side. No more pain, no more suffering, no more death, no more having to pay checks, no more disillusion, no more bent frames, no more dim eyes, no more deaf ears, no more gray hairs, no more old age, but only life, life, life without end. Paul set his purpose on living in the new Jerusalem, and he lived every day as though that day might be the day when he would move his address from this earth to his heavenly home. Ladies and gentlemen, today we have one less day to live in our lives than we did yesterday. We are one day closer to the time of our transition than we were yesterday. Today is the first day in the rest of our life. And we either have a purpose or we don't. And if you came into this place worrying about your job, how you're going to make that next payment, whether or not you have enough to keep your family together in love and in happiness. I say to you, these things really are not important at all, are they? What is important is whether or not you have a purpose that is big enough that when you go to be with God, you can take to him not a livelihood with its checkbook, but you can take to him a life that has had a purpose. Amen.
Our Father and our God, we're very thankful for the reminders that we have in life through thy word and through preaching that bring us to the reality that life is something more than most of us make it. May we know that what thou dost require is that we do justly and that we love mercifully and that we walk humbly with thee. O Lord, bless us as we leave this place and help us through the preaching of thy word and the indwelling of thy Holy Spirit to become people who stand as Christians under thy heavenly banner and as people who are content only with doing that which has a purpose for building the kingdom of God forever and ever. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of his Holy Spirit be and abide with you all now and forevermore. Amen.